Don't forget, everything's changed. Great expectations. And I thought, well, at least I look good. <laughs> oh, me. Boy, I love this church. You know, seriously, um, this had nothing to do with this morning's message, but I thought of this passage uh, many times in the last few weeks. You know, I was gone for almost two weeks, and it seems like a lot of things happened while I was gone. But you know what? In a lot of churches where you have a senior pastor, you know, a lot of things would have gone undone. But nothing went undone, not just because of my fellow elders, our true team leadership here at TCF, but because of the saints. And I thought of this passage, and we've talked about how this is uh, something we uh, strive for here at TCF, but I really have seen it in action. Some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be God's people to work the church and the body of Christ. Nothing to do with this morning's sermon either, but I thought it would be good to uh, highlight that. I thought it was uh, really important that we consider that. So here's what we do have to think about this morning. Just a second. There are things that we don't look forward to because we don't enjoy them. A lot of us don't look forward to getting up early in the morning. A lot of us don't look forward to cold weather. Yeah, I saw some hands go up already. There's other things we might not look forward to. How about the proctologist or the urologist or even the dentist appointment? Huh? We might not look forward to going back to work or back to school after a nice vacation. Then there are things that at least in our minds are much worse than those things that we just don't look forward to. These are the things that we dread. Some of us, for example, dread any occasion of public speaking. Some of us might dread written tests or exams. For some of us, what other people just don't look forward to because they really don't enjoy, we dread. For example, I know some people who really dread going to the dentist. Some people dread getting older, you know, realizing that the day has come when everything hurts and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. Or dreading the day when your insurance company has started sending you their free calendar a month at a time. <laughs> Very few things are universally dreaded. Some people actually enjoy public speaking or going back to work after a long vacation. But there are those things that are dreaded by most people. A perfect illustration of this, I've shared this story once before, but it's Worth repeating here, Mark Rudzinski led a study in our house church years ago. This is probably 20 years ago. And he started out the meeting by saying that we were going to go out and do evangelism. 
we were going to go witnessing. You could see the beads of sweat beginning to form on everybody who was sitting there. You could hear the nervous laughter, just kind of like that, in the room. Until Mark told us that he was just kidding. But it revealed something about us. And I think this applies to many more of us here than it doesn't apply to. Now, I know there's some here for whom the idea of going out witnessing sounds fun and exciting. I believe those people are few and far between. For most of us, this sounds like something we dread. It's the dreaded E word, evangelism. I've thought a lot about why this is true, and I think I've come up with several reasons why most of us dread the idea of going out on the street or even going to one of our neighbors and doing what we call evangelism. It's not just fear of rejection. I think it is that, but it's not just that. It's not just that it takes us out of our comfort zone. It's not just that we fear we won't know what to say or how to say it or when to say it. I think evangelism is the dreaded E-word because we've so narrowly defined the parameters of what evangelism is, and we have a sort of Christian cultural understanding that evangelism is only bringing people to the point of deciding to follow Christ. Now, part of the problem is that it is that, at least eventually, but that's not all that it is. Evangelism isn't just the point of decision. When a person is convicted by the Holy Spirit that he's a sinner, repents and turns and decides to follow Jesus. That's just a part of the process. But well-meaning teachers and preachers and writers through the years have made the point of decision the sum total of evangelism. So since most of us don't like to challenge people or confront them in any way or ask them to make a decision, we're not only uncomfortable with this part of the process, but we dread it. It feels a little bit too much like selling something. And while there are some people who are really good at sales and really seem to enjoy it, most of us find it challenging at best or dreadful at worst. So let's start this morning by redefining just what evangelism is and isn't. First of all, evangelism isn't just a particular method. Evangelistic crusades are not the only kind of evangelism. Evangelism explosion, in which many of us here were trained, is not the only thing that qualifies as evangelism. The four spiritual laws are not the only kind of evangelism. Street witnessing, door-to-door witnessing, are not all there is to evangelism. Now, the common denominator in all of the things we've mentioned is a complete presentation of the gospel that begins by explaining the sin problem and ends with an invitation to receive Christ. Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with any of these things I've mentioned. They've been effective, and they still, in sometimes, in some cases, are effective in bringing people to Christ, and for that, we should be grateful. But here's the problem. Most of us never, or hardly ever, do these kinds of things. Why? Because we dread the whole experience. 
most of us will avoid this, and then we'll feel guilty because we're not involved in evangelism. If we defined evangelism by these kinds of activities alone, what happens when we don't do these things? Nothing. In real life, most of our encounters, apart from real growing relationships, are limited to a few minutes here and there. To talk to a coworker, to talk to a school friend, to talk to a neighbor, or the checkout person in the grocery store. Or how about that family member that you've blasted with the gospel so many times they start avoiding you? Most of the time, you cannot give a worthy presentation of the gospel in these settings. If you try, you end up alienating yourself. So we don't say anything at all, and that's a mistake too. What most of us are is not evangelists. We are witnesses. We are witnesses. Jesus told the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that they will be his witnesses. One Bible dictionary defines a witness like this, one who has information or knowledge of something, and hence one who can give information, bring to light, or confirm something. Witnesses proclaim, they tell. In this case, not through just word, but through deed. As followers of Jesus, we are witnesses of the grace and mercy of God. We are witnesses of his plan of salvation, the good news at work in our lives. If we begin to think of ourselves as witnesses living out the life of Christ in the midst of a lost world and looking for opportunities to share that life and that witness, we can begin to realize that we are, in fact, in that doing evangelism. A critical thing to note here, evangelism is a process. We really need to view it as such. Not everyone is at the point of making a decision to follow Jesus. Now, I do think we need to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit so that when the time is right to ask someone, when the Holy Spirit has in fact made them ready to consider the most important decision they'll ever make, we can be ready to cooperate with the work that only the Holy Spirit can do. Colossians chapter 4 verses 5 and 6, addresses this idea. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I don't know any other way to do that, to be ready ourselves, to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading, than to be continually praying for people. This is a critical component of our witness. We have to also abide in the vine so that we stay exceptionally close to the Lord and don't have to strain to hear his voice or to be his instrument. But if we see our role as bringing people step by step closer to Christ, we'll be fulfilling Jesus' admonition to be his witnesses. And as we serve as witnesses, we are, in fact, participating in the process of evangelism. The incremental effort of plowing, of seed planting and watering are absolutely essential to the eventual harvest that comes when people come to the point of accepting 
the free gift of eternal life through Christ. You know, it's interesting to note how little the New Testament uses the word evangelist. Any guess how many times? Three. Dory Shupak gets the gold star this morning. Three verses talk of evangelism. Was that just a lucky guess, Dory? Did you know that? Okay, Dory, Dory also gets the gold star for being honest. It was a lucky guess. Three verses talk of evangelism using an English form of that word. One's in Acts 21, verse 8, where it mentions Philip, who apparently was gifted as an evangelist. One is a list of the kinds of gifts God has given the church in Ephesians 4.11, which I just read. I guess it did have something to do with this morning's sermon. That list includes evangelists, along with apostles, prophets, and pastor teachers. The other time is when Timothy is encouraged to do the work of an evangelist in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. That's it. That's it. That's the only three times you see the word evangelist in the word of God. You'd think something we consider to be so important and feel so much guilt about not doing would be talked about more in scripture, wouldn't you? But here's the problem. Though this particular word is not often used in scripture, the New Testament believers lived and breathed what we could call evangelism. That's because the same root word for evangelism in the New Testament is also translated good news or gospel. And those words, look it up, they're used quite often. And the gospel or the good news of salvation in Christ, the good news of the kingdom of God was the very air they breathed. They lived the gospel. And yes, they spoke the gospel. They were witnesses. They were testifying in their lives and in their words to the power of the gospel in their lives. So if you did a quick and incomplete study of evangelism in New Testament times, you might feel like, hey, I'm off the hook. How It can only be mentioned three times. How important could it possibly be? But the good news, the gospel, is mentioned dozens of times. And though the New Testament does not ask all of us to be evangelists per se, it does ask all of us to be witnesses. You know, I can count on one hand the times I've ever participated in an event designed to evangelize, like street witnessing or door-to-door witnessing or approaching people in the mall or something like that. I don't like it when the Hare Krishnas approach you at the airport. I don't like it when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door. I can imagine many people feel the same way about Christians doing similar things. It goes against the grain. It feels kind of unnatural. Now, again, I know some of you are gifted in this arena. And great, keep doing it, okay? I'm not, and I think most of us are where I am. Our heart's in the right place. We know that people need Jesus. We truly want to see people in the kingdom of God. But we dread the idea of evangelism. We also dread seeing lost people spend eternity apart from Christ. So the truth is, I'm not an evangelist. Some of us here are, but most of us won't ever be like that. The vast majority of us, I think, are not and never will be evangelism or evangelists. Evangelism is a God-given gift, and I'm thankful that some have that gift or are developing by the Holy Spirit that gift at work in them. But what we all are 
is witnesses. We are light. We are salt. We are called to be witnesses, and in that, we participate in the process that God uses to bring people to himself. So the tension is there. We're to be witnesses, but most of us are where I am. We're not evangelists, and it takes all the gumption we can muster to do any of the more traditional evangelistic things. So what do we end up doing? Nothing? It's time to refocus our thinking. Maybe the problem is with these assumptions we have. Maybe the traditional things we think of as evangelism are only a small percentage of the things God can, will, and wants to use to reach people for Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, let me read beginning with verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, the message paraphrase of verses 5 and 6 in that passage reads like this. When the message we preached came to you, it wasn't just words. Something happened in you. The Holy Spirit put steel in your convictions. You paid careful attention to the way we lived among you and determined to live that way yourselves. In imitating us, you imitated the Master. Naturally occurring evangelism occurs as part of our lifestyle, part of our ongoing relationships. It's the overflow of our life in Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, the word is assurance in the King James Version. In the NIV, it's deep conviction. Others render it full conviction. But it's the idea that we have a message here that with power behind it the power, in fact, of the Holy Spirit. Vine's dictionary says it describes the willingness and freedom of spirit enjoyed by those who brought the gospel to Thessalonica. It reminds me of the passage in John, chapter 7, verse 38. Rivers of living water will flow from within the person who believes in Jesus. Think about the people you know who have deep convictions or even just passionate interests in something. Think about how easily and naturally you learn about those convictions or interests because they're so much a part of that person's life. They're a part that can't be easily separated from other parts of their life. For example, you spend much time with me and you're probably going to learn I'm a sports fan. You spend much time with Jim Garrett and you'll learn that he loves Dixieland jazz music. You spend much time with Kirk Wester, and you'll find out he's an avid bicyclist and runner. These are the kinds of things that naturally flow from our lives because they're deep interests. 
It's the same kind of contagious passion we're supposed to exhibit about our life in Christ. That's the kind of people God wants us to be, the kind of thing that produces overflow, which witnesses to the grace of God in our lives. It's our life, the way we respond to good things and bad things, the priorities in our lives. People recognize these things. They see them. The truth is we are witnesses, whether we want to be or not, whether we're aware of it or not. The question is, what kind of witnesses will we be? Verse 6 from the passage we just read, the message paraphrase says, in imitating us, you imitated the master. The original language there for the word imitate is the root from where we get mimic, the word mimic. Did you ever notice that when you spend a lot of time around people, you begin to imitate things? You take on characteristics of speaking sometimes, maybe even accents, certain phrases, behaviors, maybe even beliefs. Do we live the kind of lives that people want to mimic, to imitate? Do we live the kind of Christ-like lives people would want to pattern their lives after? At verse 7 says, so you became a model. New American Standard of that says you became an example. The message paraphrase says your lives are echoing the master's word. To me, this understanding is a powerful revelation. It's a new and important understanding for me. It has implications I've been pondering for a long time. That's because the word translated model here in this verse literally means the impression of a blow, a mark, or an imprint. It's the same word used in John chapter 20, 25, to describe the nail prints in Jesus' hands when Thomas said that unless he saw the nail prints, unless he put his fingers in them, he wouldn't believe that Jesus was alive. So Thomas couldn't believe until he saw the blows that Jesus suffered for us. Do you think it might be safe to say that the world won't believe until they see the same Jesus in us, until they see the power of his death? and the fellowship of his suffering evident in our lives. That's true witness. That's true witness. It gives new and added meaning to Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Salt and light are not projects that we undertake. They are the characteristics of the people of God living in biblical faithfulness. What you do flows from what you are. Witness, evangelism, is supposed to flow from what you are. The character of something like salt or light determines what it does. Charles Colson said of Christians, being precedes doing. The idea is that we need to be Christians in our individual circles of influence. It's the most powerful evangelism tool we have. And, of course, you know, there's a flip side to this idea of being witnesses. Paul admonished the Jews in Romans that God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. John Calvin recognized this problem 400 years ago. He wrote, everything bad they can seize hold of in our life is twisted maliciously against Christ and his teaching. The result 
is that by our fault, God's sacred name is exposed to insult. We've seen that a lot, haven't we? We've seen it with friends, family, and we've seen it with, unfortunately, some high-profile, well-known Christian leaders. Jerry Bridges said that as believers, we should seek to be exemplary in every aspect of our lives, doing our best for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Our work, our play, our driving, our shopping should all be done with a view that not only will unbelievers have nothing bad to say, but on the contrary, they will be attracted to the gospel that they see at work in our lives. We are light. We are salt. It's the idea of infiltration as opposed to or maybe in conjunction with confrontation. Influence from within our culture, within our individual circles of influence. You know, as trite as it sounds, it's true. People don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. It's true. What you know is not as important as what you are. The days we can expect the world to come to us are over. However, all of us are in the world in some way. We have a circle of influence, and this circle of influence didn't develop by accident. We have our neighborhoods. We have our recreation. We have our work. We have our families. We have our commerce. In other words, the places we shop, do business day to day. Jim Peterson, who wrote a book called Church Without Walls, noted that the believer is strategically positioned inside the marketplace, the neighborhood, and the institutions of society. He or she is at the scene of the disaster when it's happening, is there at the moment of opportunity to embrace and serve people as the occasion arises. The believer is the key to penetrating our society. We also must remember that people are different places along that path to life. As we, we've already noted this, okay? When we think of evangelism, we almost always think of the moment of harvest. Let's not forget that so much precedes harvest. And no harvest happens without these things. No harvest happens without cultivating. That's a big chore in the harvest. And often cultivating includes earning the right to be heard. No harvest happens without planting. No harvest happens without watering. No harvest happens without growing. And then comes the harvest. These things all precede the harvest. And 1 Corinthians chapter 3 recognizes that God is the one who does all these things. And though the context of the passage I'm about to read refers primarily to unity in the church, it clearly recognizes that all these things must happen. From 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 5. What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. A person's entrance into the kingdom may happen in a moment when they accept Christ. But getting to that point is always a process. 
many people aren't ready to receive Christ at this moment. So because of that, most of us are involved in cultivating, we're involved in planting, we're involved in watering. Now the attention seems to go to the one who reaps the harvest, the one who actually gains the privilege. And it is a privilege. It is a joyous thing of leading someone to the Lord Jesus. But note that this scripture tells us that God is responsible for all of it. That power, that same Holy Spirit that 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 spoke of is at work. And we do need to be sensitive. Sometimes we do need to earn the right to be heard. Sometimes we do need to model and be an example. We need to allow people to see the mark, to see the imprint of Jesus on our life because our actions speak louder than our words. I think that's one kind of evangelism that God has envisioned for TCF. And I think that because it encompasses all of us. None of us is off the hook when we think of evangelism in this way. Those who are gifted as evangelists and most of the rest of us who really just aren't. We don't have to go looking for the lost, for the strayed, for the hurting. We live among them daily. We don't always need evangelism programs to reach out. There's nothing wrong with evangelism programs. We have them and we'll do them. All we need is to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit in our daily lives. One of the articles I reviewed in preparing this message said this, I learned I could effectively spread the message of Jesus Christ without having to fit a mold that isn't me. Isn't that liberating? Doesn't that free you? Doesn't that lift the guilt from you that you haven't led anybody to the Lord this week or gone door-to-door witnessing or gone witnessing on the street? Now, the flip side of that is that I don't think this lets us off the hook. In fact, I think what I'm preaching this morning is actually a more demanding call than we would normally associate with evangelism. Our call, our responsibility is to be witnesses. If you're just an evangelist, you can go and do that and then live like hell the rest of the week. If you're a witness, you can't. If you're a witness, you can't. If you're a witness, you have to be always on, as it were. And you have to be, as Scripture says, ready in season and out of season. Our call, our responsibility is to be witnesses. And the New Testament word used for witnesses is also translated martyrs in some places. The very same word. I think that illustrates the seriousness of this call on all of us. Also, don't hear me saying this morning that we're just supposed to be nice people and others will notice this and come to Jesus. I don't believe that either. Evangelism is a process, and often it's a long one of cultivating with the love of Jesus, planting seeds of grace, watering with his mercy. But there still does come a point, or maybe a season, of decision, a point where a person must be challenged with the claims of Christ, the reality of their sin, the grace and mercy of God, and the need to repent and turn their lives over to Christ. Even though the inviting them to come to Christ is not the sum total of evangelism, it is God's end goal. And it is the result that we pray for. All the more traditional things we think of when we think of evangelism are absolutely right on this part of the equation. You have to call somebody to make a decision. But that's another sermon. And it brings us full circle. Because we dread leading with 
that challenge or invitation or because we find it challenging to confront people with these kinds of truth claims, we often leave the work of evangelism to others, but we don't have that luxury. As followers of Christ, we are witnesses. Are we good witnesses or are we bad witnesses? Or maybe we're just ineffective and inattentive. Do our lives illustrate the grace and mercy of God? Are we seeking out opportunities to engage the people who need Jesus? As Scripture says, are we ready with a reason for our hope? Even if our part of the process is just the plowing, the watering, or the planting of seeds, are we willing to build relationships with those who need Jesus unconditionally? Develop genuine relationships, not just pre-selling them, and then trust God and look for the opportunity to share with them my story of God's reaching me with his mercy, saving me from eternal sin and eternal death. That's what being a witness is. As we pray throughout this coming year for the Lord of the harvest to send us laborers to come alongside us and work with us, and we need to keep praying that. Let's pray, too, for the harvest itself. Let's be diligent to hear his voice, to fully participate in the harvest work that God would have each of us do as individual workers, servants of the King of Kings. There was a young salesman who was disappointed about losing a big sale. And as he talked with his sales manager, he said, I guess it just proves you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And the manager said, take my advice, your job's not to make him drink. Your job is to make him thirsty. Only God saves. So it is with evangelism. Our lives should be so filled with Christ that they create a thirst for the gospel, for everyone around us, everyone we encounter. Only God saves, but God allows us all the privilege, and it is a privilege, of participating in the process which he uses to bring people to himself. Let's remember that as we pass that sign on our way out of TCF this morning, that we are now entering the mission field. Let's not be so self-absorbed, so insulated in our lives, even in the good things, that we forget that there are people all around us headed for hell unless they receive the gift of life, a gift that we have the joy and privilege of communicating to them as God chooses to use us as his instruments of grace. Amen? As we prepare to close, I want to call for a response this morning. You know, so many times when we get up here and preach, we're preaching to ourselves. And I'm preaching to myself this morning. And some of you, I think God is speaking to you as well. I just want to ask you to recommit. You know, this is all part of the prayer challenge. Because remember what we said when we talked about praying for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. We said one of the ways we want to experience growth here at TCF is we want to see people come to Jesus. We want to see new believers coming into this church. So what are we going to do about that? Are we willing to participate now, in some ways, you think, well, maybe we've lowered the bar a little bit here. It's not, we don't have to go out street witnessing. Hallelujah. 
I don't want to do that. Door to door. Some of you who do, go for it, please. But are we thinking about, are we being intentional about the relationships God has given us and about being witnesses? Are we praying for the people that we know? You know, we can't pray for the whole world. It's easy to say, God save the world. It's a little harder for us to pray regularly and intentionally for that neighbor or for that coworker. But I think as we do that, God will give us a heart for them. And God will give us opportunities. I believe he will do that. And we will have opportunities to witness to his grace and mercy at work in our lives. So as we close in prayer, if you want to join me in this commitment that we are going to change the whole paradigm here. We're not going to worry because we can't be evangelists because we're just not. Now, this doesn't apply to those of you who are evangelists. You keep doing what you're supposed to do. But most of us aren't. But we do want to be faithful to be witnesses. Amen? So, stand with me if you would join me in this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your call upon our lives. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we have the privilege of being witnesses to the grace and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you saved us. We thank you, Father, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can look forward to eternal life with Jesus because of what you did for us. But, Lord, we see, we look around us, and we see so many people headed for hell, headed for eternity without Christ. Lord, help us to be witnesses to your grace and mercy. And Father, in that, we trust you to do the work that needs to be done. Father, we're aware that no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws them. But Father, we want to be participants in that process. So help us to be your witnesses. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. Father, we want to be that. We declare that this morning. We want to be your witnesses. Help us, Father. And Father, when we do need boldness, even though we're not, most of us aren't evangelists, when we do need boldness, we pray that you'd give us boldness. Father, when we do need discernment, give us discernment. Help us to know where people are. Father, give us true Holy Spirit insight into where people are along the path to life so that we can participate in exactly the way you would have us do. May all the things we do as witnesses, Father, be directed by your Holy Spirit, Father. We want to be your instruments, your tools in bringing people into the kingdom of God. And we're grateful for that privilege, Lord. So we commit that to you. We commit to be more sensitive to it. We commit to take the initiative. We commit to pray, Heavenly Father, for those loved ones you put in our circle of influence, Father, neighbors, friends, family, co-workers, schoolmates. We thank you for this privilege, Father. Help us, Father, by your grace, help us to be faithful witnesses. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Warren. Whoa, hello. That's a wake up. I, 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 you know, it's kind of a strange. 
Over here, uh, the persecuted church, the warden shares with me that the display is updated and that there are envelopes there. Uh, he wanted to encourage you to take one as you take a look at the persecuted display right over here on the north wall. And we appreciate Bill reminding us of the truth that we are his witnesses and that we need to be salty, making others thirsty for the gospel. In closing, hmm? oh, okay, all right, hang on here. Thank you, Lord. Um, I'm no, I know everybody's not called to do what I do, uh, you know, but I know we can be a witness whatever field God has us in. And the reason why I'm sharing it, not so much of the testimony that I will share, that you would do it. It's not that. It's, it's being, like Bill said, being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, just being obedient to Jesus Christ. Um, I went to a, a toy run, a um, motorcycle toy run, where thousands of people come and... Uh, this, this wasn't this past Christmas. It was the year before. And I, I, um, I went to the rally. I, I thought, God, you're going to use me. We set up a hospitality tent. We pray with people. We give them um, literature. We give them coffee. You know, we do everything. We, we want to just be there for them. You know, we're here for you. And so that went around about four hours. And, and uh, I thought, well, God, I've done my thing for you. So... I went back home, and uh, I, I didn't realize it, but during the rally, another biker gave me a slip of piece of paper, and I, I didn't think much of it, and I just put it in my pocket. Well, when I went home, uh, I thought, well, now I can watch sports and, you know, do what I want to do. So I thought I did my thing for God. Well, as I sat there and turned on the TV, um, I felt like the Lord was pricking my heart. He said, what about that piece of paper in your jacket? I said, well, you know. So I, I was watching sports, and then the Lord wouldn't let me off the hook. So I, I went ahead and got the piece of paper out and said that there was a, a glow party after uh, the rally at uh, one of the restaurants. Well, it was really a bar. And I said, oh, no, you know, nobody's going to listen to me. The music's going to be so loud. Nobody cares. They're going to be so drunk that there's no way they're, you know, my efforts were fruitful. So, uh, I, I, you know, it was my choice whether to go or not. And I knew God was pricking my heart and wooing me to do this. So, so I just kind of like sarcastic said, okay, God, I'll go up. So I went on up and, and uh, there was a lot of bikes out parked out front and so so I said, it was like I said, well, I'm here, Lord, what do you want me to do? So uh, I walked inside, and, and it was like sardines, pack-to-pack people. And the music, they had a live band, and, and it was pack-to-pack people, and you couldn't even hear the next person talk to you. The, the band was so loud, I didn't even understand how they could talk to each other. So I, so I said, see, Lord, look, no one's going to listen to me. They can't hear me. And so then I started to leave and discuss, and, and I stood out front. And, 
you know, it's kind of like, you're not leaving yet. I've got you up here now. So, so anyway, there's, there's tracks that are made for certain kind of bi bikers. And, and this particular one, what had to do with Harley Davidson, I would have to say that over, half, over three quarters of the bikes were Harley Davidson. And the track says on the front, it says, if Jesus was here today, he'd probably ride a Harley. So uh, I had these tracks, you know. I, I, I had put them in my, my, my jacket pocket, and, and uh, next thing I know, the Lord says, well, why don't you go put a track on every one of those Harleys? And uh, the rule of thumb is you don't mess with somebody else's bike. You don't touch it. That's, that's off limits. And so God wouldn't let me off the hook. He said, well, you don't have to touch the bike. You can just put it under you know, the passenger seat handle, you know. So I went around and, and put tracks on all these bikes. Um, and then I, I went back to, toward the front of the bar, and I stood there, and, and uh, I saw people coming out and people getting the track and reading it. And some people in disgust threw it down. Some people read it and looked at it and stuck it in their pocket. And then... All of a sudden, people were leaving, and this couple came out, and there's a guy and a girl. I don't know if it was his boyfriend, but girlfriend type thing, but he just, you know, was belligerent. He was, he was you know. So anyway, I had one track left, and, and the Lord said, well, he was standing about 10 feet from me, and I said, and the Lord said, well, go ahead and give him the track. It's the last one you got. Give it to him. So I went over, and I said, sir... Jesus loves you, and I, I handed him the track. And he started reading it, and he threw it down on the ground in disgust. He said, I'm a member of a church. I've been a member of church since I was a little kid. And uh, I, I just kind of went back. I said, well, God, what do I do, you know? Well, he's left with the track, you know. He's before God with the track. And probably he was, oh, I'm thinking in my mind, why would, why would he say something like that? Probably when he was a little boy, he signed a, a church role roster and probably had men back to church in a long time. So anyway, he got mad and disgusted and rode off his girl on the back and just went out crazy. So uh, people started leaving. I got back on my motorcycle and I was coming home. And I didn't see any kind of fruit at all that happened, but I knew that I was obedient to God. That's the main thing, whether you see results or not, just to simply obey the Lord every day you, in your job, wherever you're at. You know, he will tug your heart. And, and as we do that and be sensitive to his Holy Spirit, he would lead us. Well, I'm riding home on my bike, and I'm on Broken Air Expressway heading west. And you probably know the, the, cur the, the curve that is right there before you get downtown. You see the buildings. Well, I went around that curve. I didn't think much of it. I, um, I went home. So I said, okay, God, where are the results? So I got back in my house, and I turned on the TV, and the news was on. And they were showing a motorcycle that was flipped over on the side. And they were talking about how um, a motorcycle guy from the rallies was dead. He, he was dead. And they didn't show him because the ambulance already hauled him off. But he hit two big potholes in the road. And, and I thought, God, 
you did use me. I can't prove it, but I was obedient to you. That's all that we have to do, just be obedient and leave the results to God. So I just want to encourage just one of you, wherever God has you, to pray every day and listen to his voice. It, it might mean just praying for that person that you haven't done that before. It might mean getting out of your comfort zone to, to go say a word. You know God is speaking to you to say them because he, God knows those people's hearts. We don't know them. But matter of fact, we don't know our own heart. You know, we don't know the true motive of our heart or the true motive of somebody's heart. But if we will be obedient to the Lord, that's the main thing. Amen. Just real quick. Um, I just, just want to say, if the Lord has touched your heart about being a witness to the people around you, however God has you, I just thought, um, what a way to encourage each other. When we see each other, you know, um, how are you witness this week um, in house churches? Maybe give opportunity to say, what opportunities did you have this week? Even if it's just, the, there's this person I've been praying for, and I just was showing them love this week. Just however you feel like God is calling you to be a witness. Well, thank you guys, Mike and Don, for sharing those things. In 2 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us, and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and work. So as we leave here today, let's put feet to what we've heard from Bill and from Mike and Don, that we are Christ's witnesses and his ambassador for the kingdom. Thank you, Father for your sure word today. Thank you, Father, that you pricked our hearts. You got us to thinking about things that we remember 20 years ago. Help us now, Lord, as we step out of here today, that we would see the mission field is right in front of us. It is through Christ Jesus our Lord we pray these things. Amen, and we are dismissed.